Good morning. Uh, the passage today is from Luke 7, verses 33 to 50. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He says, Say it, teacher. A creditor with two debtors had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them would love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. And you gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. And therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who has forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment to uh, just put our stuff down. Take a deep breath as we prepare to hear from God through his word by his spirit. I want to encourage you just to take a deep breath in and uh, breathe out. And let's just ask God to, to speak to us this morning. And then I'll pray for us here in just a moment. Gracious Father, we thank you for inviting us into worship this morning to hear from your word, to to be transformed. And God, we desire to be formed into Christ together as a community to practice your way, that we might be agents of reconciliation and transformation in the world. So help us this morning as we think about what it means to be received in hospitality by Jesus and then to extend that hospitality to others around us, that they might too feast on the kingdom of God. Teach us, God, convict us, encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we started a new series called Preaching the Gospel. And I wanna encourage you, if you did not have the chance to be here, to go back and to listen to that message. We talked about, um, really as the first uh, vision for this series, what it means to be and to become a gospel people, right? That before we get to the work of how and what, it looks like to preach the gospel that we need to become people transformed by the gospel because the way that we're going to see people transformed is, is we allow ourselves to be transformed and then we bring, out, we bring that transforming presence with us into the city. So I wanna encourage you to go back. We talked about what the gospel is, what it's not, and uh, really, really hope that you'll go back and listen to that. This week, we wanna to begin to explore together over the next several weeks um, how we preach the gospel. How do we actually 
do that? What does it look like to, to get into the particulars of sitting down and opening up our lives and our, our mouths and sharing the good news of Jesus? As many of you know, several weeks ago, my family had the opportunity to travel out west for the first time. We went to Yellowstone, and it was a trip that we'd been planning for, for years. COVID kind of sidetracked it. And so we were excited to go, and one of the first places that we went up through the North Loop from here, so you can kind of go south or north, we went north first, then came back through the, the Heartland and the South Loop. Um, but we went through uh, Rapid City and uh, came uh, at just around dusk to a place that uh, my, I think my kids are probably most excited about, uh, just because they were most familiar with it from school, was uh, to Mount Rushmore. And if you know anything about Mount Rushmore, obviously there's a, a, a mixed history to say the least. There's a lot of brokenness, a lot to lament, but there's also a lot that's beautiful. And, um, and so we, we pull up, it's literally about to get dark. At dark, they, they cast a, they call it lighting up um, Rushmore. It's really just like a spotlight, right? <laughs> they put a spotlight on it. They show a video and, um, and, and you walk through it. It's beautiful at night because you walk through all of the state flags. And, and if you've ever been there, that entrance that walks you right up to the front of Rushmore. And as we round the corner, something happened I didn't expect at all at Mount Rushmore. Um, there was a man, uh, probably a little, bit younger than, a little bit younger than me, and he, and he had a sound system set up, and he was literally yelling at everybody going by. Um, and so you probably know, maybe you've seen this before, but it's big signs out, basically like everybody's going to hell. Uh, and it was an interesting message. I, I was walking by just cringing because I have my children. This is the first time they've ever seen a street preacher. Um, and so I grew up in the South. <clears throat> These are my people, you know. <laughs> and they're like, Dad, what is that? What's he doing? Because he's like kind of like yelling, but he's talking about Jesus. So it's like this mixture of like repent. Uh, you're a horrible sinner. You need, you know, to repent of your sins or you're going to go to hell. And then like, you know, stuff about the election being, you know, a conspiracy, like not, you know, being stolen. And then there's stuff about like Biden, President Biden. It was a weird mixture. It's what, it's what we talked about last week. It was a great example of Christian nationalism on display. But um, I was cringing because my kids are just like, that is so weird. Like, who's going to listen to that and actually be like, hmm, that's interesting. I should become a Christian. Um, and, and, and it didn't feel like, even like the spirit of Jesus. And so when we think about preaching the gospel, when we ask like how we do that, it's, it's like not like that, right? Of course, and that, that makes some of us cringe. Now what's interesting, as we cringe about the street preacher, I was also reminded this week how many of us do the very same thing on social media. Uh, we just call it like sharing uh, our posts, right? Like how many of us share our posts, angry posts, um, you know, inflammatory posts, we troll people, we angrily kind of put our views out there and we, we bomb people with social media messages. That's the new street preaching, by the way, just so you know. If that's you, you are the new street preacher. Um, and, and, and I just wonder, like, again, how many of us, like, when was the last time you put out a post and somebody's, like, direct messaged you and said, you know what, I would love to talk more about that Jesus? <laughs> or somebody, your, your mind was changed when somebody threw out an inflammatory post um, w with a video link, and you were like, hmm, that's interesting. I, sh I should probably consider their perspective. I mean, that's not generally super effective, right? And so we kind of oftentimes know more what we don't want and how we don't want to do uh, preaching the gospel. Um, but I think a lot of us, maybe our, our vision for preaching the gospel has been formed by this kind of aggressive, um, you know, it just feels like a slick sales pitch, or you know, maybe not so slick sales pitch. Henry Nowen uh, in his book, Reaching Out, says this about preaching the gospel. 
as a reaction to a very aggressive, manipulative, and often degrading type of evangelization, we sometimes have become hesitant to make our own religious convictions known, thereby losing our sense of witness. Many of us feel paralyzed when it comes to how we preach the gospel. And so for the next couple weeks, we want to look at some of these basic practices. This week, we're going to start by talking about reaching out to others through hospitality. Next week, we're going to talk about sharing words of hope. How do we actually share the good news with words uh, at 1 Peter 3? Uh, Then we're going to look at practicing mercy and justice. Matthew 25 says that proclamation and demonstration have to go together. And then the last week, uh, we're going to look at the the book of John and how we learn to recognize where God is already at work and join God in what he's already doing, knowing that we don't have to make stuff happen. So I want to start us off this morning looking at Luke chapter 7, just a great story, a great narrative about Jesus and how he did evangelism. We said last week, we want to do it in a way that's not toxic, not coercive, doesn't lead to harm, but rather we want to look at the way of Jesus and the way of his disciples throughout history and say, how did he do it? And then how can we reclaim and recover the beautiful way that Jesus shows us to preach the gospel? So four observations from this text here briefly and then what I really want to do with the back half of our message today is I just want to, I want to stir up your imagination, right? Because you can read the text, and I think all of us kind of know and maybe have some inclination that we should be a hospitable people, but it's different to actually have models and exemplars. And, and I want to just tell some stories about how this has happened throughout history and then how this is happening in our community right now. And I hope to just stir up your imagination so this doesn't feel like uh, just like a checklist or something you have to do. But like, again, like a beautiful way to live. Because this hospitality is the environment in which Jesus preaches the gospel, right? It's the primary environment space. And so that's what I want to do with our time today. So first observation here from Luke chapter 7, we see that Jesus's primary method for preaching the gospel was hospitality. Notice in verse 33, before this story uh, kicks off, Jesus talking to mostly uh, the religious leaders Verse 33, he says, For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. The key thing I want you to pay attention to is the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Tim Chester, in his excellent book, I highly commend it, Meals with Jesus. Uh, a meal with Jesus. He says this, that Luke's phrasing here is intentional. When he says the son of man has come, that is Luke's way of summarizing the ministry of Jesus, right? The son of man is Daniel, the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. It's his label for the one who's going to come before God to receive authority over the nations. That's the son of man. And so he tells us here how the son of man comes. And there's two references in Luke's gospel. He'll say, the son of man has come, dot, dot, dot. He'll say that a couple times in his book. First, he says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. He only says the son of man has come for two things. One describes his missional purpose, right? He came to seek and to save the lost. Why did Jesus come? He came to seek and to save the lost. Then he says, the son of man came eating and drinking. This describes, he says, his method, how he came. He came eating and drinking. This is Jesus's vision for proclaiming the kingdom of God. Let me just describe it to you 
In a nutshell, Jesus, the way that he would preach the gospel, especially with the wounded, especially with the marginalized, especially those who were treated as outsiders and kind of the untouchables. This category here, Jesus is called uh, by the religious leaders. It's not a positive thing. It's a pejorative term. He's a friend of sinners and tax collectors, right? That, that's code in the New Testament for the lowest, the lowest of the low, right? Tax collectors, and as we're gonna see here in a moment, sex workers. That's the primary thing they're aiming that at with their critique of Jesus. So these are the lonely, these are the forgotten. These are the broken, the wounded, the moral degenerates of the day, the unjust betrayers, the oppressors even of their own people. So here's how Jesus preached the gospel to them. He would oftentimes invite himself uh, into their home because remember Jesus was homeless. So he would kind of set up shop in somebody else's home, which <clears throat> again, excuse me, <clears throat> should tell us something about um, if you feel like you don't have resources to open up your home or you don't have money, Jesus was poor and homeless and he did hospitality all the time. Jesus would flip the script and he'd play the role of host. There would be good food and good wine. There would be conversation and laughter and tears. And Jesus would listen to people and engage their stories. Unhurried dinners was how Jesus preached the good news. And at some point, Jesus would usually invite people to reflect on their story and to experience the good news of his radical grace and love and mercy. That doesn't make me cringe. That makes me ache. It makes me desire. Something that Jesus did that, to be honest, I'm not always great at. Robert Karras, New Testament scholar, said in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. 50 references, at least, to food and feasting throughout the Gospels. Jesus had a reputation for eating and drinking with people that the religious leaders would not eat and drink with. And you see these stories throughout the book of Luke. I'll throw a few up on the screen if you want to see just a list. Luke 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. It's after this dinner, actually, that the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the chief priests begin to get angry. It says they're enraged at Jesus because he's feasting with these people, and they begin to talk about, how do we get rid of this guy? Already in Luke 5. Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Martha and Mary. Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at a meal. Excuse me. I promise I don't have COVID. I just, I, I, can't, I can't, catch my, can't catch my breath here. Luke 14, Jesus encourages people to invite the poor to their meals. We'll come back to that in a moment. Luke 19, Jesus eats dinner with a tax collector, Zacchaeus, a betrayer of his people, and, and Zacchaeus becomes a follower of Jesus. Luke 22, Jesus eats the last supper with his disciples. Luke 24, the risen Jesus has a meal with two disillusioned disciples on the road to Emmaus. This was Jesus's way, was the way of hospitality. Secondly, this practice of hospitality disrupted social and religious norms that were attached to the way people did meals. You can see that in their response. They weren't happy with the way that Jesus tabled with people. Why was this so scandalous? Why did it provoke such a strong response from the Pharisees and the religious leaders? You have to understand about food, and this has been true at all times and all places, but especially in ancient Palestine, meals 
were more than just casual outings with friends and family or a private act of consumption to refuel our bodies, right? Like in the ancient time, a meal was not something you would drive through and stuff down on your way to like basketball practice, right? Like that's not what happened with a meal. These were communal acts that were imbued with layers of social and spiritual meaning. Food both symbolized and created networks of dependence and inclusion. I mean, think about when you eat a meal, right? When you think about saying a blessing in a meal, what are you giving thanks for? You're not just giving thanks for the food, you're giving thanks for the network of people that you rely on to get that food to you, right? Think about the farmers. You think, especially in Indiana, right? Like we see this very up close. The traders, the shopkeepers, the cooks, the manufacturers, the farmers markets, and the grocery stores that all make up part of this, uh, you know, kind of interlocking system of food. Right, So food can bring us together, but food also divides people along sociocultural lines of race and class and gender. Think about the places that you eat lunch. Think about who's there and who's not there. Right? We don't have a formal system of Jim Crow laws anymore, but there's all these informal, unspoken laws and norms about who's allowed to come into certain places. I experience this all the time in Broderpool. I, when my kids were little, I had four kids under the age of five. It was an unspoken rule in Broderpool, you don't bring four kids into Starbucks or any coffee shop, right? Like as soon as I would bring my loud, noisy children with their runny noses and their coffee, this is all you know, pre-2020, whatever, but like even then, People would give me the side eye. They're like, what are you doing with your children in here? This is a safe, this is a third space for me to hang out and do community with people. Not like you, you know, like that was kind of what they were saying. And it was the same back then, right? One, one scholar says doing a lunch in that time was doing theology. Anthropologist Mary Douglas in her famous essay on the significance and history of meals talks about meals as boundary markers, Meals not only symbolized, but created boundaries socially and culturally. Meals served as status reinforcers in ancient times, both in Jewish society as well as Greco-Roman society, right? You invited people into your home, into your social circles, who were either up the ladder from you, who could advance you in some way, or in your peer reference group, but you never, ever, ever invited people down the ladder up. That was just kind of the way that it happened. And there was this law of reciprocity where I would invite you, you would invite me, and it created this kind of cycle of reciprocity and mutual obligation. And remember the Pharisees, even as they're inviting Jesus into their home, there's something of this happening. Jesus has a reputation as a miracle worker, as a great teacher. And so they're inviting him into this cycle, right? And for the Pharisees to invite someone in your home, again, remember last week we talked about the Pharisees They wanted to apply the laws concerning priests and the temple to ordinary people. And and if you remember, the temple had very strict boundaries for dividing uh, people, right? The outside court was where the Gentiles could come. The inside court, the Jews could come. And then you had the Holy of Holies. So for Simon here, who's a Pharisee, his table, you could say, is his Holy of Holies. Only certain people are allowed to come around the table and dine. Rabbis, therefore, this is called table fellowship, was how this kind of came to be known, this practice. Rabbis, as part of table fellowship, didn't share meals with Gentiles or with anyone considered richly unclean. They were explicit about something that's often implicit today. New Testament scholar Scott Barchi says it like this, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person 
had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. So all of that is in the background, right? As we get into this story here, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house. He reclined at the table. If you've ever eaten uh, a meal in uh, uh, cultures like that the kind of have a more ancient way that they do hospitality. I, I lived in Morocco for a summer when I was in college, and we uh, basically kind of roamed the desert just getting to know befriending uh, Muslims. And uh, we would come up into the middle of nowhere, and people would open up their homes, and they would always have on hand uh, mint tea and uh, kind of goat's meat and couscous. And we would literally lay around, just taking pieces of uh, couscous, taking uh, bread and goat, dipping it in uh, sauce, curry sauce, and different things with couscous, and just sharing them. It's a very intimate space. You're literally right up in each other's faces. And this is exactly what, it, what would have been happening. And, and in those days, um, they had a practice, a Greco-Roman practice of symposium, where they would have dinner and they would discuss ideas after dinner. And so they'd be sitting in, I have a picture of it, what would have been a semi-open kind of courtyard setup, right? So don't think like our houses are closed with locked doors. These were mostly open houses, especially wealthier people had open houses with courtyards where the poor would often come by and stand right outside of the room, hoping to get leftovers from the meal. Business would be transacted in these courtyards, right? So they didn't have offices. Their office was essentially the courtyard. So it'd been easy for people to walk by and to be watching what was happening and to be interested in overhearing conversation. And so we have here, verse seven says, a woman in the town who was a sinner. Other translation says a woman of the city. This is a euphemism for prostitution. She was a sex worker. She comes into this gathering in a Pharisee's house. She brings an alabaster jar of perfume, stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping uncontrollably, right? Like just imagine somebody busting up into your dinner table, into your dinner party, weeping, like, right, all of the awkwardness, all of the what is going on here, all of the uncomfortability was all happening right there. She takes her hair, which was done up, right, which is the appropriate way to be in public for a woman. She lets her hair down. Letting your hair down was something you only did in private. Some scholars have noted here that she's essentially showing intimacy to Jesus the way that she would do a client. It's the only way that she knows how to share love. Completely inappropriate, though, in terms of the taboos of the day. But she's trying to express intimacy in the way that she knows. Notice she began to wash his feet. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them, anointing them with perfume. And notice... Jesus' response, he receives it. He doesn't rebuke her. Because for Jesus, hospitality and the table were not about boundary markers or excluding others or maintaining cultural purity or climbing the ladder of honor or status. But really, for Jesus, it was about extending the radical welcome of God to those who are hurting and lost and looking for salvation. Jesus' habit of befriending and parting with sinners was so scandalous that it triggered this violent outrage from the Pharisees. They called him a drunk. They called him a glutton, which is a reference to Deuteronomy 21. In Deuteronomy 21, it speaks, the law speaks of a rebellious, drunken son who is to be stoned for his immorality and his idolatry. They view Jesus as this rebellious, drunken son who's upending the social order, who's tainting their national purity. 
And they also understood that Jesus' gracious, gracious inclusion of the unclean and the marginalized, the tax collectors and sinners, meant that people like them, the self-righteous and the self-important, who thought they were on the inside, were actually on the outside. And this is ultimately why they wanted to kill Jesus. Robert Kara says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. So, he upends these social norms. Thirdly, quickly, he expo- this practice of hospitality exposed people's hearts. Jesus and Simon, he gets mad. Verse 39, Simon the Pharisee says, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus says, with, he's thinking this, and Jesus reads his thoughts. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. He tells a story about two debtors. And, uh, and the fact they couldn't pay back what they owed and they were forgiven for their debts. And he says, which of them will love him more? Simon says, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus says. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus flips the script on Simon. Simon was supposed to be the host. Jesus is now playing the host. Jesus is telling Simon, I'm not the rebellious son. I'm not the false prophet. I'm the faithful son, the true prophet of Israel, who's come to preach good news The good news of Isaiah, good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, bringing liberty to the captives. It's you, Simon, Jesus says, who fails to grasp what's happening in this moment. And what this hospitality, this act of hospitality is doing, it is excavating all of the ugliness and the sin in your own heart. It's exposing the evil and the pride and the self-righteousness. That's what hospitality does. It shows us what's really in our hearts. Simon thinks he's the righteous host, but he doesn't even fulfill the basic expectations of a host. He's the host who's not a host, right? And it's actually the woman here who is the unwanted guest who plays host to Jesus and Simon. As a Pharisee, Simon thinks he understands the law. He thinks he understands the kingdom of God, but he's missed the whole point of the law. The spirit of the law, the spirit of the kingdom of God is about love and justice and mercy and forgiveness. That's why Jesus tells the story about two debtors. And he says, Simon, just like in this story, you don't get it. You're not extending love and grace because you've not received the love and grace and mercy of God himself. You see, hospitality is a disposition of the heart more than it is about what kind of silverware you put out in your home for a party. That's a great question for us to be asking ourselves Our dinner tables always say something. Meals that we share or don't share always say something about what we believe about God and ourselves and about the world. What do our dinner tables say about what we really believe in our hearts about ourselves, about others, about Jesus, and about the kingdom of God? Who's missing from our tables that should be sitting at our tables? And how are we treating those who come into our homes who are very different from us? We say this all the time at Soma. If we want our cities to change, we need to start with changing dinner tables. Because the dinner table, if if the right people are gathered and the right people are the wrong people who are the right people for Jesus, 
It will expose what's happening inside. And for Jesus, lastly, the practice of hospitality, his practice of hospitality embodied what he believed about the kingdom of God, the kingdom message he was preaching. See, food and meals for Jesus represent and embody the kingdom of God, the new world order, the new kingdom, the new social order that Jesus came to establish. Jesus turned Simon's home into a living parable of the kingdom message. There's receptivity and grace for the broken. There's confrontation and judgment for the self-righteous. There's forgiveness and salvation. A woman comes in broken, needing forgiveness. She leaves and goes in shalom and peace. And this is, this is the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Jesus has come to seek and to save image-bearing prodigal children who lost their way. He longs to meet them in their place of brokenness and pain with the good news of God's radical grace and mercy and love. And he does it by way of a table and a feast and a meal where those who are far from God can experience probably for the first time in flesh and blood the welcome of God with real people, a real savior who looks them in the face, who smiles at them, who embraces them, receives their kisses, empathizes with their pain and forgives their sin. And Jesus here is flipping on its head the model of how the religious people thought about holiness, right? Because Jesus is the one who fulfills the law. Jesus is the one filled with God's spirit. He is the Messiah. He flips this narrative that, that to entertain somebody is to be infected with their sin. And Jesus flips that and transforms that, and he unleashes a contagion of grace through his own sinless touch that spreads holiness and grace. Jesus doesn't get infected by sin. He infects them, you could say, with grace. That's what's happening in this moment. That's the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, if you want to know what the kingdom of God will look like, that's what it looks like. Now, all of that is kind of our text. It is our text. What does that mean for us in terms of how we think about hospitality and preaching the good news? Let me first just say, as we, as we move to kind of just defining this and then just some application, what hospitality is not. Hospitality, and I'm going to step on some toes here, um, but I, it, let me just say what it's not. Um, first of all, it's not what we think of as a dinner party. Millennials love dinner parties. I grew up in the South with Southern hospitality. Next picture here. Uh, I know a little something about dinner parties. If you don't, let me just introduce you to the queen of Southern hospitality, Paula Dean, the North, North, Northeastern version of that, Martha Stewart, if you're from the East Coast, right? Formal dinner parties of a generation ago, we laugh at kind of like at this. It's like formal dinners, expensive food, match, everything had to be matchy, matchy, matchy table sets, right? Uh, that's the old school. Now, let's go to the next slide. This is probably our church, the millennial common table, you laugh because we know it's true. Got to have the right, like, Edison light bulbs, you know? Got to have that long table that somebody in your missional community made for you, right? Hats. I mean, the whole thing, right? <laughs> but, like, notice, this is just another version of Martha Stewart and Paula Deen. It's just a little bit less fancy, but it's the same thing. It involves usually inviting people in our socioeconomic reference group or people up the ladder 
from us, people who can advance us. It, invo- it involves lots of uh, you know, smooth conversation, lots of planning weeks in advance. We control kind of the environment. It's a way for us to build social capital with people like us. Now, here's the problem. I- I'm not against this. I'm for, don't stop doing this, right? I, I want us to keep doing dinner parties, but I-, I want us to do it differently than the way that Broderpool does dinner parties, the way that Hamilton County does dinner parties, the way that Hendricks County does parties. See, the problem with the dinner party is that often it's about performance. It's performance, art, and entertainment. It's about impressing other people, about proving ourselves. Another problem with it is that it often perpetuates and reinforces social divisions and social hierarchies instead of healing those divisions. We're not going to be agents of healing in our community if we're continually leaving out the least and the last, because that's not all these pictures, you look at all these magazines, I think there's a famous one in Portland called Kinfolk. I mean, you look at all these, it's all mostly middle to upper middle class people who all look like each other and share the same biases, were educated at the same places, run in the same socioeconomic circles. Church, if we party like this, we perpetuate those problems. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a story to his disciples and to the religious leaders And at the end of the story, he says, when you give a lunch or a dinner, this is a command for us. When you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends. He has in mind this kind of mutual obligation cycle. Don't invite your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite the poor, invite the maimed, invite the lame, invite the blind, and you will be blessed Jesus says, you will experience the kingdom of God because they can't repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous when presumably you're feasting with them in the kingdom of God. Man, that is so convicting. And I'm not gonna sit up here and lie and act like I don't do it, right? I am guilty as anyone. It is so hard to not just look around you and invite in the people already in your circles. I did not grow up with this model of hospitality. I didn't grow up in the church. I came, into, uh, came to faith at kind of a middle class, upper middle class, and have served in those church environments. It's hard. We are conditioned and hardwired from the time we are little to think about sameness and inclusion of sameness. One of the great lessons and ways my family uh, learned this uh, uh, for ourselves with our kids was by going down a couple years ago every Friday night or a couple Friday nights a month and serving at Wheeler Mission with uh, beautiful women there. Uh, a lot of them coming out of drug addiction and really broken situations. And we would just come in and we literally throw a party. We'd say, what do you guys want? What do you want tonight? Bring your kids. We'd love just to bless you guys. And they always wanted Mountain Dew for some reason. I don't know, Mountain Dew and Cheetos, right? I think they hadn't sugared in a while. Uh, and so we'd bring Mountain Dew and Cheetos, we'd, we'd bring cards, and we would just sit and we'd play, and we'd laugh, and we'd tell stories, and we'd get to know each other by name. And it was a beautiful experience. It was something that I had rarely experienced in my life before maybe 10 years ago. And, and it taught us something about what Jesus is, is saying here, because we, we can't allow hospitality to be co-opted by a cultural vision of sameness, even in the name of diversity and inclusion. It's not a dinner party. It's also not hanging out with other Christians. We often talk about hospitality nights in our missional communities. We used to do this early on in Soma. We'd have hospitality nights. And we'd say, invite people to our hospitality nights. And it was amazing. Time after time, hospitality nights became, let's get other Christians just to come over and hang out. It's not biblical hospitality. 
The kind of hospitality Jesus offers here is for those who are the least and the last, the widow, the poor, the orphan, the fatherless, those who are wounded, those who are far from God. That is true hospitality in the way of Jesus. Hospitality, what is it? It comes from the Greek word philozenia, which means love of the stranger. Its opposite is xenophobia or fear of the stranger. Henry Nouwen, again in his book, says hospitality means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. Rosaria Butterfield, in her great book, uh, Radically Ordinary Hospitality, read this as a church last year. She says, radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with a house key. Hospitality and feasting are one of the primary metaphors used to describe the kingdom of God. If you go Genesis to Revelation, food is central. Feasting is the kingdom of God, right? Look at the Exodus. You look at Isaiah. You read Revelation. The new city, the new creation, the new heavens and the earth, new earth is a feast. It's us feasting around a table, every tribe, tongue, and nation, people coming from all different kinds of background, centering their life and reality on Jesus, We see that in the book of Acts, Acts 2, Acts 4, throughout the book of Acts, people just opening up their homes and showing hospitality. It's one of the primary marks of the spirit-filled community in the New Testament. Romans 12, share with the saints and their needs, pursue loving the stranger, pursue hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without, I have no idea what that means. Nobody knows what that means, but it means something. Good, I assume. See, this is the way that the church exploded over the centuries in the Roman Empire. Hospitality. In an inhospitable, violent, cruel world, Christians demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control in opening up their homes and creating, building actually institutions of hospitality. Alan Kreider in his survey, the patient ferment of the early church, in his survey of how the church grew through the earliest centuries before Constantine says this, early Christians did not write any treatises about evangelism. They didn't go door to door. They didn't engage in street preaching. There was no organized effort or program. There were no celebrity evangelists or missionaries. They owned very few things and they had little social capital. They didn't even let people into their worship service. You know, for the first couple hundred years, people were not, they did worship in secret because they were persecuted. They literally had people guarding the doors of their gatherings so that outsiders could not come in because it was so dangerous. Now, that does not sound like how we do evangelism today. But he says Christianity grew. It grew through what he calls casual contacts in networks and homes. And here's his statement. Throughout Christianity's first four centuries, the church was primarily a domestic phenomenon. They opened up their homes and lives and extended the kingdom of God to their friends and neighbors through relationship. The word hospitality is the root word from which we get things like hotels, hospitals, right? We've commercialized hospitality now. But historically, the Christians were the ones that opened up their homes to the stranger. 
They, it, it, they were the ones who built hospitals for the poor and sick. The first public hospital, free public hospital, was opened by a bishop, a pastor, a theologian named Basil or Basil of Caesarea in the fourth century in central Turkey. It had the first live-in medical staff, six separate departments for the poor, the homeless, the stranger, the orphan, the leper, the aged, and the sick. Fabiola, a female disciple, a wealthy woman who came to know Jesus and gave her wealth away, started at the first one in the West. That was, Basil was in the East, she's in the West what we now all enjoy access to started with Christians showing hospitality to the broken in the name of Jesus. The rule of St. Benedict famously starts with all guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ for he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Francis Schaeffer, a modern example of this in Labrie started a community where he opened up his home to disillusioned, disenfranchised, wounded intellectuals during the 1950s, 60s, 70s. So many people came to know Christ through Francis Schaeffer as he opened up his home. He says, don't start with a big program. Don't think you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally, start in your home, I dare you. There's no place in God's world where there are no people who will come and share a home as long as it is a real home. It's authentic. I could tell you so many stories. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield was an atheist, and she tells her story in Radically Ordinary Hospitality. I encourage you, if you haven't read that story, to read it. It's phenomenal. Uh, one example this week, uh, I was, we were, uh, next slide, we were sharing some time. Uh, our staff went over to hang out with Tamise Cross on the right, who's our worship director at Summit Northwest. And uh, Tamise is uh, the executive director of a new initiative called P30, which is essentially a big community development space on the Near East Side. This is an unbelievable space. This is going to literally transform the east side of Indianapolis. I, I truly believe that. And Tamise and uh, Rose, who's on our board, and our staff got to hang out uh, right by this mural that had been uh, painted by one of their artists. And Tamise was telling me the story about, uh, because they had this space, a woman who was traveling from the east coast to the Midwest got stranded in her parking lot. And Tamise uh, just went out to get to know her and meet her. And she's like, I saw this woman in her car. Somebody, somebody called me and said, there's a woman in her car with a child. Uh, in our parking lot. And Tamise lives right on the near east side. She's like, I live a couple blocks from here. So I was like, oh, okay, but I know I need to go. Jesus is calling me to go. I don't have time. This isn't, this isn't you know, uh, what I want to be doing, but I'm gonna do it. She goes, she gets to know this woman. She invites her in to take a shower. She begins to make phone calls. Uh, a mechanic here to fix what's broken in her car, food here, uh, you know, a place to stay, a place, you know, safety for the children. She's able to basically just give this woman everything she needs to get back up and going out to where she's heading uh, on her next stop. And this woman says, before I met you, I would never read a Bible. I, I, I thought God hated me. And now for the first time in my adult life, I find myself open and curious about this Jesus that you say you believe in. She had the opportunity to share the gospel with her. And this woman came to faith in Christ because of her hospitality. And it so encouraged Rose who herself had lived on uh, streets and been on the borderlines and borderlands of poverty, that Tamise was able to provide the same kind of hospitality. And Rose is serving on the board, investing back in as one who's received Tamise's hospitality. And Tamise is the queen of hospitality on the Near East Side. Now, I, I tell you this because I know that there are many of us doing that here. 
There are many of us opening up our homes here to refugees. We have a strong and growing refugee care ministry. There are many of us that are showing hospitality at Purdue Polytechnic High School, right? Like some of you are teaching. Luke got baptized. is teaching there. We have others, the Duffies, and others that are teaching there. We have coaches that are coaching sports teams, but people coming from all different kinds of backgrounds, opening up their lives and opening up hospitality by extending the welcome of God to people in that school. We do it in Poorhouse every week as we move in our homeless friends and neighbors off the streets and help them find permanent housing. I wanna encourage you in that and I wanna continue to say, let's be a hospitable people. As I close and take us to communion, I just want to invite us into a space of reflection. So let's go ahead and close our stuff down and I just want us to think about two things as we think about the work of hospitality, because I don't want this to be a try harder message or a like you leave here feeling guilty and shamed because you don't do enough hospitality message, right? It's not what this is about. This is about Jesus. This is about practicing the way of Jesus. But, but I do think there are some barriers to practicing the way of Jesus, and most of them are actually not our resources. We think the barriers are external. I would actually say most of them are internal, like in the story, right? So here's how I wanna close, just two invitations. One, there is inner work that has to be done for us to become a hospitable people. An ongoing inner work that has to be done, right? Hospitality, and the thought of this, even as you're probably sitting here right now, you're just like, I don't know, seems risky. I don't know if I can do that. Hospitality starts with hospitality of heart. It's a posture and a presence, the presence of Christ, a posture of the heart, more than it is about our stuff. Some of the most hospitable people I've ever met in my life, I shared bread with in garbage dumps in Guatemala City, and in the middle of nowhere in the Philippines, and out in the desert in Morocco. But see, what we have to deal with is the things that are stirring around inside of us. We have to deal with our fear, specifically fear of the other, fear of those who are different, fear of what might happen to our stuff. If somebody comes in and messes with our stuff, you see, it challenges our notions of kind of like ownership and this is my stuff and I don't want somebody messing with my stuff, getting into my space. I realize that, but recognize that is, that is fear, right? It messes with our sense of control over our environment. If you're a control freak, you will not be able to do hospitality. And then again, what gospel are we preaching? Who, who owns everything, truly? We'll have to deal with cost and with a scarcity mindset. It's gonna cost money. It's gonna cost time. If you're busy, you can't do hospitality. So we need to be asking questions of why am I so busy? Am I busy doing the things that Jesus was busy doing or not? And if not, why? What, what might that say about what I'm believing about God and myself and about my neighbor? There's pride, right? And a self-preoccupation that can creep in. There's envy and a sense of competitiveness and insecurity. Well, I don't wanna go into that person's home because I don't like rich people or I don't like poor people or I'm insecure and, and I'm preoccupied. I'm always thinking about what am I gonna say next? And I don't want things to be awkward. Let me just tell you, if you're gonna do hospitality, it will be super awkward. Did you know that hospitality is a biblical qualification for eldership? And I tell our elders all the time, we go through and train them for eldership. You are now the elder of awkwardness. Congratulations. You are commissioned to go into awkward spaces, to open up your home and have awkward conversations because that is the way of Jesus. 
And that's why Nowen says we, we need to have a poverty of spirits. He says poverty is intimately connected to hospitality. And that's why Jesus was so good. He didn't own anything, didn't have a possessiveness about anything. He had a humility of heart. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was solely, fully present with the person there saying, how can I love you, serve you, welcome you into the kingdom of God? So that's inner work. I wanna throw up these questions. You can take a picture of these. This is the kind of inner work that we need to be doing together as a community and asking the questions about why we are the way we are. We've been conditioned, we've been socialized to think about hospitality in a certain kind of way. And we're gonna have to unlearn some patterns and learn some new patterns in the way of Jesus. And then the second thing is just experiment with hospitality this week, right? That's what we want you to do. You're gonna eat 21 meals, hopefully somewhere between uh, you know, 12 and 21 meals this week, or 14 and 21 meals, do it. Right? Experiment with it. Invite somebody out. Who in your life is hurting? Who is overlooked? Who needs encouragement? Right? Just do it. And do it in a way that fits your season of life. You can't do it if you're 40 with four kids. I can't do it the way that somebody who's 23 with no kids can do it. But do it in a way that fits you, your season of life, your personality, right? Like I know some of you are introverts and you're like, that is my worst nightmare. Okay, that doesn't absolve you, right? But it does shape the way you think about hospitality versus somebody who's a raging extrovert and they're like, yes, finally, Soma's preaching on hospitality. A million people, I'm gonna gonna have like a scoreboard in my house, a million people by next week. No, stop. We don't need to shame each other, right? Like it might just be one. Let's just start with one for us introverts in the room. But what opportunities do I have this week to share a meal? This week's practice, which will be in the newsletter, is in the newsletter, will be on our website, is just to simply do a neighbor map. It's just to simply to look around in our lives and say, who is my neighbor? Who is God calling me to love? Who's a person in a place of pain? Who's hurting? Who can I celebrate with? Who might God be drawing me towards that is far from the kingdom of God, the last and the least, and how might I begin to just name them, right? Do I know their names? Pray for them and talk about in my missional community, in my discipleship group, in my family, how we might show hospitality to them in the name of Jesus. Okay, let's pray and then we'll go here to communion. Father, thank you for this good news that you have come to make the kingdom of God radically available to us in Christ. Jesus, thank you for giving us such a rich example, both in your life and in the lives of your disciples throughout the ages of what it looks like to not do some sort of weird, cringy, aggressive evangelism that doesn't really even work, but God, just what it looks like to be a patient, faithful presence, opening up our lives and our homes to extend your welcome to those you're drawing into your kingdom. So God, would you teach us your way? Help us to obey this week where your spirit's calling us to go. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.